Hello, and welcome to NapTown. I'm your host, Susan Neville, and our guest for this initial series of interviews is writer Dan Wakefield. Mr. Wakefield is the author of nine nonfiction books, two memoirs, and five novels, including the best-selling Going All the Way. Bill Moyers called Dan's memoir, Returning, A Spiritual Journey, one of the most important memoirs of the spirit I have ever read. Of his book, Island in the City, The World of Spanish Harlem, James Baldwin wrote, Dan Wakefield has a remarkable combination of humility and tough-mindedness that makes these streets and these struggling people come alive. Over the next few episodes, we'll be talking to Mr. Wakefield about his life, including his deep friendships with writers such as Baldwin, Anne Sexton, Joan Didion, and Kurt Vonnegut, and his interviews as a staff writer for The Nation, The Atlantic Monthly, The New York Times, and other newspapers and magazines, with such luminaries as Bobby Kennedy, C. Wright Mills, Dorothy Day, Adam Clayton Powell, Joan Baez, and Golden Meir, some of whom became good friends. Again, I'm your host, Susan Neville, and welcome Mr. Wakefield back to NapTown. Kurt Vonnegut, Christ-loving atheist. When I came home from King's Chapel on the Sunday, I published an article called Returning to Church in the New York Times Magazine in 1985. I had a message from Kurt Vonnegut on my answering machine. This is Kurt, his voice said. I forgive you. My becoming a Christian again in midlife after many years of post-collegiate atheism and Vonnegut's humanist views became a running and always good-natured series of jibes between us. Several decades after his message of forgiveness, I saw a poem Kurt published in The New Yorker, and I fired off a postcard to him a self-proclaimed Luddite, he scorned computers and email. My postcard said, I see you have become a poet. I forgive you. Almost by return mail, I got back a postcard from Kurt that said, Not as bad as you becoming a Christian. Kurt was proud of coming from a long line of German free thinkers. His great-grandfather, Clemens Vonnegut, founded the Freethinkers Society of Indianapolis, and Kurt was named honorary president of the Humanist Association. He explained in his novel Timequake that humanists try to behave decently and honorably without any expectation of rewards or punishments in an afterlife. The creator of the universe has been to us unknowable so far. We serve as well as we can the highest abstraction of which we have some understanding, which is our community. If it turned out there was an afterlife, Kurt reserved places in it for people he cared about, including his first wife, Jane, 
and his long-time publisher, Seymour Lawrence, who he said, Save me from smithereens, by publishing his novel that three former publishers had turned down, Slaughterhouse-Five, and bringing his former books into standardized new editions. Kurt loved to tell the story of how he let his heavenly sentiment slip before the wrong audience while delivering a eulogy for his predecessor as president of the Humanist Society, the science fiction writer Isaac Asimov. Kurt said, I was sure that Isaac must be in heaven now, he told me once with a smoky laugh and a cough. He elaborated his lapse in timequake, adding, That was the funniest thing I could have said to an audience of humanists. I rolled them in the aisles. That I had become a Christian in the largely humanist Unitarian Universalist Association, King's Chapel in Boston is one of the few Christian churches in the UUA, provided Kurt with an added source of amusement. In 2003, he sent me one of his silkscreen drawings inscribed, Dear Dan Wakefield, Unitarian Universalist Fanatic. Kurt told the General Assembly of the Unitarian Universalist Association that, in order not to seem a spiritual paraplegic, to strangers trying to get a fix on me, I sometimes say I'm a Unitarian Universalist. He also described himself as a Christ-loving atheist in that same talk, and in a Palm Sunday sermon he gave at St. Clement's Episcopal Church in New York City in 1980, he said he was a Christ-worshipping agnostic. He belonged to no church, however, and made it clear that he was not a Christian. In a letter to his daughter, Nanny, September 8, 1979, regarding the wedding plans for his second marriage, he wrote, It will be as secular as I can make it, since I am not a Christian of any kind, but it will take place in a church because churches are so beautiful and holy. He wrote Don Farber, his longtime friend, lawyer, and executor of his estate, in September of 1999, that I am not, nor have I ever been, a Christian, so I should not be given a funeral or memorial service, any sort of Christian supervision, or in any Christian space. I was inspired when I heard that a graduate of my high school in Indianapolis had stories in the Saturday Evening Post, one of the popular slick weekly magazines of the 50s, a literary Valhalla where giants like F. Scott Fitzgerald had published. This writer named Vonnegut had written for our high school paper the Shortridge Daily Echo, ten years before I did, which gave me hope. I went to the barber shop to search for his stories in magazines 
and eagerly read his novels when they started to appear, feeling a kinship with his humor and his conversational style. I first met Vonnegut in 1963 while I was on a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard, and a mutual friend in Cambridge invited me to dinner with Kurt and his wife, Jane, who were living on Cape Cod. Kurt was a tall, shaggy, friendly man, and in the laughter-filled conversation at the table with eight guests, he and I didn't talk about writing. We talked about high school. Our bond was that we both were failures at high school sports. We could laugh about it then, decades later. My agent sent the manuscript of my first novel, Going All the Way, to ten publishers, including Vonnegut's publisher, Seymour Lawrence. Sam Lawrence sent it to Kurt for his assessment, and a few days later called me to read the telegram of response. You must publish this important novel. Get this boy in our stable. I thought of Kurt as the godfather of my 1970 novel, and he became a friend and mentor for life. We read and, in his own phrase, boomed each other's books. We had lunches at Jake Worth's German restaurant in Boston and assorted spots in midtown Manhattan after he moved to New York, often going back to his house to make phone calls to friends. Surprising old friends with calls was a favorite pastime of Kurt. Out of the blue, he loved to tell dumb jokes, and when plans went awry, his comment was, well, just another Indiana catastrophe story. <laughs> a year before his death in 2007, he came to a talk I gave at St. Bart's Episcopal Church and invited me to dinner across the street at the bar of the Waldorf. When two of his fans approached our table to ask if he was the real Kurt Vonnegut, he diverted them to talk about my new book. That was indeed the real Kurt Vonnegut. In Boston in the 60s, I began to see college students carrying dog-eared copies of Vonnegut's books and quoting from them to friends. He was gaining an underground audience for his quirky, irreverent wit, his questioning of accepted wisdom, and his fresh ways of looking at the world. Because of his appeal to youth, Vonnegut was sometimes called a counterculture hero, but the label was counter to his real message. He scorned the easy answer and the quick fix, and he wrote a scathing piece on the Maharishi Mahesh Yoga Guru to the Stars called Yes, we have no nirvanas. <laughs> After hearing the guru give a talk on transcendental meditation in Cambridge, Massachusetts Hotel Ballroom, Vonnegut wrote, I went outside the hotel, liking Jesus better than I had ever liked him before. 
I wanted to see a crucifix so I could say to it, You know why you're up there? It's your own fault. You should have practiced transcendental meditation, <laughs> which is easy as pie. You would also have been a better carpenter. Vonnegut's survival of the firebombing of Dresden as a prisoner of war in an underground meat locker during World War II gave a dark cast to his satire and inspired his great novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. He scrapped conventional forms of narrative and made Billy Pilgrim his hero come unstuck in time, traveling to different times and places in his life. Dresden, Indianapolis, Schenectady, Cape Cod, and the planet Tralfamador. The refrain, so it goes, said whenever a character dies in the novel, became a kind of brand and tagline for a sort of casual dismissal, missing the explanation of its meaning. Billy Pilgrim says the most important thing he learned on Tralfamador was that when a person dies, he only appears to die. He is still very much alive in the past, present, and future. Always has existed. Always will exist. When a Tralfamadorian sees a corpse, all he thinks is that the dead person is in bad condition in that particular moment, but that the person is just fine in plenty of other moments. Now, when I myself hear that somebody is dead, I simply shrug and say what the Tralfamadorians say about dead people, which is, so it goes. Despite his freethinker humanist views, no other American novelist of the post-World War II era expressed such a fascination with Jesus, nor referred to him as often in his work, both fiction and nonfiction, as Kurt Vonnegut. Except for John Updike, a confessed Christian, and James Baldwin, who had been a junior minister at a Pentecostal church as a boy in Harlem, it is hard to think of any other leading writer of the era who mentioned Jesus at all, except as a curse word. Baldwin told me that one of the publishers who rejected his autobiographical first novel said they'd be willing to publish the book if I took out the Jesus stuff. When Go Tell It on the Mountain was published in 1953, it included the Jesus stuff. Vonnegut's initial fascination with Jesus began when his uncle Alex introduced him to Powers Hapgood, a fellow Harvard grad and nationally known labor organizer who came from a wealthy Indianapolis family. Kurt, who thought he might try to work for a labor union after he got out of the army, describes the lunch with his father, Uncle Alex, and Hapgood in July of 1945 in an autobiographical prologue to his 1979 novel, Jailbird. Hapgood, 
who had led picketers protesting the execution of Sacco and Vanzetti, fought with United Mine Workers organizers who he thought were too right-wing, and he later was jailed for his role as a CIO strike organizer, had been in court that morning testifying about violence on a picket line some months before. Describing that morning's time in court, Hapgood told the Vonnegut's that the judge asked him, why would a man from such a distinguished family and with such a fine education choose to live as you do? Why, Hapgood said, he answered. Why, because of the Sermon on the Mount, sir. The Sermon on the Mount became a kind of keystone in Vonnegut's talks and pops up in novels and essays as well. In his Palm Sunday sermon at St. Clement's, he told the congregation, I am enchanted by the Sermon on the Mount. Being merciful, it seems to me, is the only good idea we have received so far. Perhaps we will get another idea that good by and by, and then we will have two good ideas. In his book of essays, The Man Without a Country, Vonnegut wrote that, for some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes, but often, with tears in their eyes, they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. And, of course, that's Moses, not Jesus. I haven't heard one of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. Next to the Sermon on the Mount, the words Vonnegut quotes most often in his work were spoken by his fellow Hoosier Eugene V. Debs while running for president on the Socialist Party ticket. While there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. While there is a soul in prison, I am not free. In his novel Timequake, Vonnegut called those words a moving echo of the Sermon on the Mount. He quoted those words as epigraph to his novel Hocus Pocus, which he dedicated to the memory of Debs, a socialist and a pacifist and a labor organizer. Vonnegut found another echo of the Sermon on the Mount in the work of Mark Twain. In a talk he gave at the 100th anniversary of the completion of Mark Twain's fanciful house in Hartford, Connecticut, in 1979, Vonnegut declared himself a skeptic of the divinity of Christ. Confirmed of my skepticism by Mark Twain, in my formative years, he wrote. He then cited a quote of the author as a profoundly Christian statement, an echo of the Beatitudes. Mark Twain wrote, When I find a well-drawn character in fiction or biography, I generally take a warm personal interest in him for the reason that I have known him before met him on the river, 
the river, of course, is life. Mark Twain is saying what Christ said in so many ways that he could not help loving anyone in the midst of life. The idea of mercy came up in Kurt's conversation as well as in his work. He told me several times that Karl Marx's famous line that religion is the opiate of the people was usually misunderstood. He said, Marx wasn't putting down religion when he said that. He meant that in the era when rich people used opium to use their pain and poor people couldn't afford it, they needed something that would make them feel better. And religious belief really did that. Kurt felt that was merciful. And though he declared himself a scorner of the notion that there is a God who cares how we are or what we do, he honored the role of religion in the life of believers. He said, My great war buddy, Bernard V. O'Hare, now dead, lost his faith as a Roman Catholic in World War II. Vonnegut wrote that in Timequake. I didn't like that, he wrote. I thought that was too much to lose. I knew Bernie had lost something important and honorable. In his 1999 commencement address to Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, Vonnegut told the graduates, his, Jesus' greatest legacy to us, in my humble opinion, consists of only 12 words. They are the antidote to the Code of Hammurabi, a formula almost as compact as Albert Einstein's E equals MC2 squared. Jesus of Nazareth told us to say these 12 words when we prayed. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And for those 12 words alone, he deserves to be called the Prince of Peace. And how does Vonnegut reconcile his appreciation of Jesus and his message with his humanist beliefs that derive from the freethinker tradition of his ancestors? This is how he explains it to the graduates of Agnes Scott College. Some of you may know that I am a humanist or freethinker, as were my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and ancestors and so not a Christian. By being a humanist, I am honoring my mother and father, which the Bible tells us is a good thing to do. But I say with all my American ancestors, if what Jesus said was good, and so much of it was beautiful, what does it matter if he was God or not? If Christ hadn't delivered the Sermon on the Mount, with its message of mercy and pity, I wouldn't want to be a human being. I would just as soon be a rattlesnake. It didn't matter to Kurt whether Jesus was God or not, and to him it was clear that Jesus was not divine, but the most humane 
of human beings. It was because of Vonnegut's belief in the need for extended families rather than a belief in Christianity that he wrote to a friend that when I, an atheist, hear from a man about to get out of prison who has no family waiting for him, who wants to know what to do with his freedom, I tell him, join a church. Then he added, the risk of that, of course, is that he might join the wrong one and end up back in the cooler for blowing up an abortion clinic. Kurt often wrote and spoke about the need for extended families, and in a letter to his friend, Dr. Robert Maslansky, that was August of 2000, he cited this conclusion by the late Harvard theologian Harvey Cox. What made Christianity comforting to so many was the congregation. Surprise, surprise, an extended family, as essential to human health as food. Vonnegut believed that providing people with extended families explained the fantastic growth of Christianity in a Roman Empire which was so cruelly opposed to it. The state religion formed crowds of strangers to propitiate gods in enormous buildings or plazas. Christians prayed with cozy little bunches of friends who met regularly in cozy little places, which felt much better. In a Playboy interview, Vonnegut said, I admire Christianity more than anything. Christianity as symbolized by gentle people sharing a common bowl. In Vonnegut's early novel, Cat's Cradle, published in 1963, the visitor to an imaginary island assumes that Julian Castle, the character who is the founder of the House and Hope and Mercy in the Jungle, is a follower of Albert Schweitzer. Castle says, In case you run across Dr. Schweitzer in your travels, you can tell him he isn't my hero. But thanks to him, Jesus Christ is. The visitor says, I think he'll be glad to hear it. Castle responds, I don't give a damn if he is or not. This is something between Jesus and me. There seems to be something between Jesus and Kurt Vonnegut, though certainly it is not a belief in Jesus' divinity and a frustration that, quote, they had to make him a god, but an admiration, a fascination, and a kind of kinship with the man he called my wild and loving brother in what is surely one of the most surprising and seldom-mentioned pieces of Vonnegut's work, his rewrites to the words of the Requiem Mass. Vonnegut had attended the world premiere of Andrew Lloyd Webber's music composed for the Requiem Mass, promulgated by Pope St. Pius V, in 1570, by decree of the Council of Trent. 
performed at St. Thomas Church on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, an outspokenly Anglican institution, in 1985. As Kurt explained in his nonfiction book, Fates Worse Than Death, nobody seemed to know or care what the Latin words meant or where they came from. We were all there for the music, or maybe it was the chic place to be that night. But Vonnegut cared. When he read in the program the English translation of the Latin words to the Mass, he found the words that sounded so lovely when sung in Latin were terrible, promising a paradise indistinguishable from the Spanish Inquisition, sadistic and masochistic. And he noted that, lest somebody think I am mocking Holy Scripture, the Mass was as frankly man-made and as nearly contemporary, taking the long view of history, as Hemingway's Green Hills of Africa. When Kurt got home from hearing and reading the Requiem Mass, he stayed up half the night writing his own version with a more merciful message. I got rid of the judges and tortures and the lion's mouth and having to sleep with the lights on. Kurt changed the opening and closing line, let light perpetual shine upon them, to let not light disturb their sleep. He explained that he didn't want his beloved sister Alice and his first wife Jane and all the other dead people to have to try to get some sleep with the lights on. In his translation, Vonnegut wrote of Jesus, My wild and loving brother did try to redeem me by suffering death on the cross. Let not such toil have been in vain. Making the Requiem Mass more merciful was so important to Vonnegut that he found a specialist in church Latin to translate his words into Latin, found a composer to set them to music, and after being turned down by several churches in New York City, his Mass was given a premiere by the best Unitarian Universalist choir in the country in Buffalo, New York. That was quite a labor for a non-believing humanist. Vonnegut was 63 when he translated the Requiem Mass, and five years later, he wrote to his longtime friend Ben Hitz, who'd been a friend at Shortridge High School, I am now, because of my age and my steadfast lack of faith, at least a bishop in my own religion, German free thinking, and am, in fact, treated as a peer by the likes of Paul Moore, then Episcopal Bishop of New York, who has become one of my closest friends. I also get along fine with Jesuits. It wasn't until I was 64 that I came across a statement by Nietzsche that I could articulate why committed Christians and Jews sometimes find me respectable. Nietzsche said, Only a person of deep faith. 
can afford the luxury of skepticism. In Slaughterhouse-Five, Billy Pilgrim endures much of what Vonnegut endured as a prisoner of war, and toward the end of the book, the narrator says, Billy cried very little, though he often saw things worth crying about, and in that respect, at least, he resembled the Christ of the carol. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Those words of the carol are the epigraph to the novel. In the last few years of his life, Vonnegut turned more to drawing and artwork, feeling like Melville's whalers who had said absolutely everything they could ever say. As well as his drawings that he collaborated on with Joe Petro III to make silk screens, Kurt made posters for friends expressing his views. The year before he died, he sent me a drawing he had framed of a golden flower with words written in blue above it. Blessed are the happy-go-lucky girls and boys. Printed by the date, January 18th, 2006, was the inscription, A New Beatitude for My Christian Friend Dan. I called to thank him and asked where he got the phrasing and what exactly it meant. He explained that he had never liked the beatitude, blessed are the meek, because, he said, it reminded me of a hangdog bunch of people, which I didn't much like. Then someone showed me a French Bible that instead of meek said, blessed are the debonair. I translated that as happy-go-lucky girls and boys. If I had to sum up Vonnegut's own theology, I would quote a passage from his novel, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. When the protagonist plans a baptismal speech, he is asked to give for his neighbor's newborn twins. Hello, babies. Welcome to Earth. It's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. It's round and wet and crowded. At the outside, babies, you've got about a hundred years here. There's only one rule that I know of, babies. God damn it, you've got to be kind. I would call that rule, like the words quoted of Eugene V. Debs, a moving echo of the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't know until I read and assembled his letters that Kurt had written a Christmas carol at the request of Lucas Foss, a well-known composer of classical music who had written an opera based on the Mark Twain short story The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County. Kurt sent a copy of the carol to Don Farber, his lawyer and friend, with a note that said, Lucas Foss and I have talked for some years about doing some hymns and carols together. Here is my first serious try. 
Dear Lucas, I am not a Christian either, but you have to admit it's one hell of a story. And this is Kurt's Carol. Angels said, come to this stable rude, where deep in the hay, which is cattle's food, lies a baby who sleeps full of milk so sweet, more precious than rubies from head to feet. Here is my guide, sang the angels to paradise. Am I foolish to come here, or am I wise? This is the place. He is here. He is here. Those who would kill him are near, are near. So keep him our secret, so dear, so dear. And the mother's name is Mary. Starlight did wake me from death-like sleep. So filled me with joy, I did laugh and weep. I did follow the star to this rustic shed that my starving soul might at last be fed. Here is my guide, said the starlight to paradise. Am I foolish to come here, or am I wise? This is the place. He is here. He is here. Those who would kill him are near, are near. So keep him our secret. So dear, so dear. And the mother's name is Mary. Season's Greetings, Kurt Vonnegut. That's so beautiful. Is it possible to hear that song? I don't think it's ever been done that I know of. It's never been done. That's interesting. But it has been set to music? I don't know that. I think I have a friend in Bloomington, Ian Woolen, who's the son of Evans Woolen, the architect. And he's married to a woman named Sue Swaney, who teaches music at Indiana University. And three or four years ago, she asked me if she could set to music Vonnegut's words to the Requiem Mass. And I sent this request on to Mark Vonnegut, who's the executor of the Vonnegut estate. And he said it was fine with him. And so she has worked for the last two or three years to bring this off. And it's happening in Bloomington this weekend. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that. And she told me she would make a copy of it and send it to me, which I would then send to Mark. Thank you, Dan, for reading that essay, which originally appeared in the Quarterly Image Journal, and I think is one of the best pieces about Vonnegut's kind of moral vision that I've ever read. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned that in the 60s you saw students walking around with his books, and it really appealed to students at that time. I teach a Vonnegut course to freshmen at Butler, and I have to say that those books still do. They still have the same power. And in part, I think it's because of the free thinking. I mean, kids are born into religious traditions in the Midwest, Mm -hmm. 
and they end up thinking they have to say a few words, I believe, I believe this, or, and it's something they clearly feel, many of them feel, particularly 18, 19, hypocritical, because they don't know what it means or what it is they're saying, and yeah. so they suddenly read Vonnegut, and it's like, yes, mm. this is the reason this is important is because it's the mm. antithesis of the code of Hammurabi. It's not yeah. an eye for an eye, yeah. a tooth for the tooth. The reason this is important is because community is important. It has everything to do with seeing the thing that's important in the world is mercy and not justice. Yes. And I don't know. I just think it's really interesting that it's almost like his novels taken together become kind of canonical books of a new New Testament for kids. And I keep hearing new things in them. And last summer, Brian Fonseca at the Phoenix Theater produced a musical based on God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. And hearing that musical, you know, sometimes you can read things and there's certain parts of it you don't remember, and then you hear them in another context. And what stuck out for me a lot in this musical, because they are from the novel, was his talk about the Money River. Right. About what it meant to be born near the Money River or to be born far away from the Money River, which is a very obsessing concern right now in this country. And I think students are aware of that and are responding to that. I have a good friend, Sean O'Connell, who teaches at UMass Boston. And he told me four or five years ago that he had trouble getting his students to read Updike and Roth, but they all loved Vonnegut. And I think it's because when you think about it, and I admire both those authors, I've always had a special feeling for Updike because he wrote the first basketball novel oh, right. that I That's ever read with Rabbit Run. And he was here, as you know, since you arranged it, the first spirit in place was with me and Vonnegut and Updike. And I love Updike's work, but when I think about it, if I were a young person today, I would not be interested in reading about the suburbs in the 1950s. You know, those subjects seem so distant and so irrelevant as subjects, not as the way he wrote, but as subjects. Whereas Vonnegut was always, whatever he wrote about, he was giving you new ways to look about, think about them, to look at them. And I think that's one of the elements that makes him so exciting and relevant to students. Yeah, the Money River. I think when we read God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, in my class. That's one of the things that my students responded to. And I think it's that vision of Eugene Debs mm. that Vonnegut also took in, I think, from his Midwestern and German free-thinking background. It's like, oh, yeah, I see. I understand when people are talking about privilege, what that mm. means. And I understand that the Money River is something that seems to just be available to some people and not to others. And they were really interested in thinking about Mr. Goldwater's vision. Should he give 
all his money away or not. Yeah, yeah. That was the big question at the end. I mean, they had huge arguments over it. But, you know, to even just think about those issues, Lonegut brings up things that are really important. And the Money River was important in Vonnegut's life in that it was a real struggle for him. And in 1957, his beloved older sister Alice died of cancer in a weird, odd juxtaposition. The very next day, her husband died in a train crash going from New Jersey to New York City. Suddenly, her children, her four sons, were orphans. And on hearing this news, Vonnegut and his wife Jane, just immediately without thinking, they were already having trouble supporting their own three children, but he got in the car and drove to New Jersey, picked up those boys and their two dogs and drove them back to Cape Cod and raised them as part of their family. It's often said that they were adopted. Mark Vonnegut told me once, well, we never really legally adopted them because it would have cost a lot of money, Mm -hmm. and we didn't have the money to do that. And they were known in the family as the orphans, and I met them at the memorial service for Kurt, and in the program they were billed as the orphans. Oh, my gosh. But that's always been an amazing story to me. And again, it goes yeah. back to your essay because yeah. just without thinking, yeah. you know, their family, its community, you do that. And that's the kind of person and, he was. And Mark Vonnegut, who's become a good friend to me and who I met in the 70s, Mark and I were both living in Boston. And he called me up and he said, He was writing his first memoir called The Eden Express, which was about graduating from Swarthmore and with other friends, establishing a commune in British Columbia and taking some LSD and having a real serious mental breakdown, was in a mental hospital in British Columbia. And Kurt and Jane both went up to be with him during that time. And after that, he recovered from that, went back to Cambridge, Mass., and got into Harvard Medical School and became a respected and beloved pediatrician in Boston. And the way I got to know him, when he was writing that first book, he asked Kurt for help. And Kurt said, well, Fathers should really never try to be their son's editors. It's too delicate. And so he recommended that Mark see me. And so I worked with Mark on that. I don't remember having that bigger role, but Mark had told people that I was helpful. And so that sort of established our friendship. And then Mark wrote a second memoir, which I believe has never been given the due. It's a really important and fabulous book. And the title is Just Like Someone Without Mental Illness, Only More So. And he talks about growing up with Kurt. And he says, and he said to me in conversation that really bothers him when people come up to him and say, what was it like being the son of a rich and famous author? 
And he said, I don't know, because <laughs> I graduated from Swarthmore in 68, and that was a year before the money hit. Mm. Uh, when Slaughterhouse was published, he said, so I always think of my father, the man who was turned down for teaching an English course at Cape Cod Community College. <laughs> and of course, this was during the years when Vonnegut, for a while, was a Saab dealer. He had the Saab dealership for Cape Cod at a time when most Americans had never heard of Saab automobiles. He did a variety of jobs, and he invented a board game. He invented a particular kind of bow tie he hoped would become popular with uh, students, which didn't work. Almost everything he tried didn't work. Jane Vonnegut later wrote about that era, saying what we were mainly living on was hope. I remember that. And I remember at one point that he borrowed $100 from Mark's paper route money. Oh, my God. So many stories branch off of that. Yeah. Can you tell the story about when Jane was getting together the clothing? Oh, before? yeah, yeah. Well, Jane Vonnegut, who I really loved, she was one of the most generous, just delightful, warm, friendly people I've ever known. and. She was a kind of, I would say, kind of mystic. I mean, she had foreknowledge of things. And it was in those days considered, uh, you know, mental problem or something. But before the orphans came, before Sister Alice died and then they took in the boys, Jane started gathering clothes and blankets and furnishings and putting them in the barn at their house at Cape Cod. And Kurt said, what's this for? What are you doing? And she said, well, it's for the refugees who are coming. And Kurt said, what refugees? Well, that she knew the refugees were coming. So Kurt thought, well, maybe she meant the Hungarian refugees mm -hmm. at that time. And even had her see a therapist who basically said, well, as long as she's doing her work as a wife and mother, no use to go into this in depth. But then when the orphans came, there were clothes there were and clothes blankets and sleeping gear for them already. That's amazing. That's just so amazing. One of the best stories. Also, I think you told me a story once about going with Kurt to either the commune that Mark was living mm. in or to another commune in yeah, Canada. No, this was a commune in Massachusetts. It was right after Going All the Way came out. And I had known some sort of hippie guys in Boston. One of them was a remarkable young man at the time named Ray Mungo. He'd been editor of the Boston University newspaper. And he started a commune. It was in Packers Corners. It was either Vermont or Massachusetts. But he and his friends wanted me to introduce them to Vonnegut. And I said, I really can't do it. This is after Slaughterhouse Drive, and he was bombarded with requests and everything. And so I later learned they just, on their own, turned up at his house <laughs> in Cape Cod. 
knocked. Imagine how many times that probably <laughs> happened to him. And they knocked on the door, and they later told me, he just looked at him and said, what can I do for you people? And I said, well, we just wanted to talk to you. We love your books. He said, well, let's go for a walk. And he took him for a walk around the Cape, and they were happy, and mm-hmm. he was happy at any rate. Later, Sam Lawrence, the publisher, published one of their books. Steve Diamond had written a book about the commune called What the Trees Said. And Ray Mungo wrote a wonderful book about that commune called Total Lost Farm. (laughs) But they were having a celebration. It must have been like their second or third anniversary as a commune. And they invited me and Kurt and Sam Lawrence to come as honorary uncles of the commune. And that was a really nice thing. We did not eat the brownies that we were offered. Oh, you didn't. But it was a great occasion, and we were glad to be part of that. But Kurt, as I say, was definitely not a counterculture person. He said he had once had one inhalation of a marijuana cigarette with Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, and it didn't do much for him, and so that was that. Kurt was a pretty good drinker, though, right? Yeah, and one of his habits, which he wrote about, was to stay up late and call old girlfriends (laughs) or our other friends, and said he would drink bourbon, and his breath was like a combination of roses and mustard gas. (laughs) But One of my favorite stories he had of that experience, when he was a senior at Shortridge, there was a tradition, which luckily was no longer a tradition when I was a senior, but on graduation, some of the teachers gave joke presents to the students, and the football coach of the time gave Vonnegut a subscription to the Charles Atlas bodybuilding course, which (laughs) he felt very bad about. He felt humiliated. He said he was a tall, gangly, uncoordinated kind of kid. Presents never work. They never work. (laughs) And so after Slaughterhouse was published, and suddenly Vonnegut was sort of really overnight rich and famous And so one night when he was making his late-night phone calls, he called Indianapolis Information, and he got the number of the coach, (laughs) called him up and said, this is Kurt Vonnegut. You may not remember me. I just wanted to tell you my body turned out just fine. (laughs) That's great. I said to Kurt, that's probably what every student wanted to tell some teacher or other. Never had the guts. But he loved these phone things. I remember once in New York, after lunch, it, it had come up at lunch that I knew a man named John Murrah, who I'd known in New York in the 50s. He was a well-known anthropology teacher at Vassar, a great guy. And Murrah had been in the Lincoln Brigade in the Spanish Civil War. And Kurt said, oh, my God, John Murrah, he was my classmate at Chicago when we were studying mm-hmm. anthropology. He said, let's call him up. I said, well, I don't know how to get a hold of him. And he said, well, We'll figure it out. Where did you last hear from him? I said, well, the last I heard, he was at Cornell. And so he said, well, we'll call up Ithaca Information. And so we did. And we got John Murrah on the phone. And uh, Kurt talked to him about Chicago. And then I got on. And I said, well, John, uh, 
when you come to New York next, uh, let me know. I'd love to get together with you. And John said, Dan, uh, I'm in a wheelchair. I, said, oh, I don't, no. you know, oh. I'd forgotten he was like 20 years older than me. Oh. But anyway, it was uh, Kurt just loved making that connection. I got a phone call from him once, and I didn't realize that he was a phone caller. And mm-hmm. it terrified me that Kurt Vonnegut was on the phone. And I just remember him saying, Susan, Susan, um, what are the words to, uh, on the banks of the Wabash, far away, <laughs> yeah. is it Newmon Hay or I don't know. Yeah, it was, yeah. you know, he was yeah. confused between the words and I thought, I don't know. And it was before the internet. So obviously he couldn't look it up. I couldn't look it up. So I went, I said, I'll call you back. And I went looking around the house for a book called The Indiana Experience <laughs> that had the words in there. By the way, I love, you know, WFYI, the PBS station in Indianapolis, did a, a wonderful uh, documentary of Vonnegut. And at the very end, they quote him. He says that if he could be remembered in any way, it would be as the gentleman from Indiana. Right. I think that's the way, uh, who was the... Of the gentleman from Indiana, uh, Tarkington? Yeah, Booth yeah, Tarkington, Tarkington was known as the gentleman from Indiana. Right. I mean, it is really amazing when you look through his books and you see how many little winks toward Indiana there are. There in Timequake, I think there's mm. a groundskeeper at Butler University, where we are right now, yeah. named something Harkey. after the senator from Indiana and Debs comes up and, you know, friends of his from childhood. And we mentioned the editor of the Wall Street Journal, whose last name is Barney Kilgore. And that shows up. And he wrote once that he said, whenever my writing is best is when I am writing as a person from Indianapolis, which is who I am. Mm -hmm. And he also was very aware of the social stratification and all its meanings in Indianapolis. And he once said, he gave in a talk to the Indiana Civil Liberties Union, and he said, I attended a Lily White High School in Indianapolis, and I come from a city that was just as segregated as Biloxi, Mississippi, except for the drinking fountains and the buses. So he was aware, as I think no other Indiana dignitaries of the era were, or certainly never mentioned these things. Right. The books that he wrote, the only one I can think of, well, maybe Dead Eye Dick, is set in Indianapolis. But mm. God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, is set yeah. in some place that's probably yeah. kind of near New Harmony, India. Yeah. He was wiser than I in setting, <laughs> in setting his yeah. books other, yeah. other yeah. places. But by the way, when I edited the book of Vonnegut's letters, just called Kurt Vonnegut Letters, what struck me was how loyal he was throughout his life to friends from high school, to friends from the Army, friends he worked with at General, General Electric. Friends from Iowa, where he taught, students who he had taught, all of these people, and friends from Cornell. One friend named Miller Harris, who had started out wanting to be a writer, had some things published in Harper's, and his father owned the Arrow Shirt Company. 
And he realized this was a more secure route, and he decided to take that. But he always sent Bonnie get the latest arrow shirts and things. And I loved the correspondence between them. And I was thrilled when I was doing the letters book. I thought, gee, I wonder if he's alive, if I could still get a hold of him. And lo and behold, I found him on the Internet. And he was great. And he said he was just on his way to a clothing convention in Colorado mm. or something. And he spoke about Kurt with great affection. As everybody. And also, Kurt had one person I really want to mention who is not mentioned enough is his very good Shoreridge friend, Meiji Faley, mm -hmm. who wrote a very nice book about his childhood and their friendship called We Never Danced Cheek to Cheek. That was because Meiji was very short, but he used to stay with her and her husband when he came to town. She was a very close friend. And I had the good fortune of meeting one of his friends who was in the Owls Club with him. What Short is the Ridge. Owls Club? The Short Ridge clubs that had nothing to do with the school administration. Social clubs were very, very important. I was in Spats Club. Vonnegut and his friends had created something called the Owls Club, and one of them was Ben Hitz, who was the best man at his wedding and who he corresponded with, was in it, and also a man named Victor Joseph. And I was able to speak to him. And Victor published a paper, I think a weekly paper in a small town somewhere around Indiana. And Vonnegut had written a lovely introduction to a book of his collection of the papers and so on. So he was always very thoughtful to anybody he had any connection with like that. And Victor confirmed to me, I had always wondered if this was true, that Vonnegut has a story about a soldier coming home when he's in the army. He hasn't yet been sent overseas, and he comes to visit his old high school sweetheart, who sounds like Jane, and it was called A Long Walk to Forever. And at the time, she was engaged to somebody else. Mm -hmm. and. They had been sweethearts before that in high school, and he convinced her to marry him. And that was a very good move because, as Mark Vonnegut said, she, more than anyone, confirmed his writing, believed in him, believed more than he did that Jane he would did. be great. And I can see that. And it was funny, he later spoke ill of that story in one of the story collections. I found a, in an introduction that he said, thinking of those stories, he said he was embarrassed that he had written a ladies' magazine romance story, and he was putting down that story. But I think it's one of his best stories. It's very spare and lovely and just gets everything in some exact way. That's great. Maybe you don't want to answer this, and or maybe you want to cut it, but can you talk a little bit about what you think led to the breakup of his marriage with Jane? Because it seems like they were, in many ways, really good for one another. Yes, for many years. And Mark writes wonderfully about that in his memoir, just like someone without mental illness, only more so. Which is a great book. And I really don't know, but I always had a theory that, you know, if you were going to write a novel 
about a breakup of a marriage, you could not have a more classic thing that a man who has lived all his life up until his mid-40s, struggling to make a living. He's lived with a particular kind of person, and he suddenly, after becoming really overnight rich and famous, he changes his entire life. He leaves a bucolic existence on Cape Cod for the very middle of Manhattan, mm -hmm. marries a woman who is physically and in many other ways the exact opposite of his first wife. It was just like turning his life over. It's like something you'd write in, it, a, right, in a novel. That's, that's what it's always seemed like to me. But then, you know, when you've entered act two of the novel mm. and suddenly you get everything you thought you wanted, then it's like, what do you do next? Yeah. And that just, yeah. I wondered if it had something to do with sudden fame and sudden wealth sure, and knowing, you know, I'm what, sure what do you did. do with that? And also that first part of the life was so intense, the, the holding it all together mm -hmm. to making and raising these kids in, in a way that they've all turned out wonderfully and talented. And it's just an amazing feat. And maybe you just had to say that was so exhausting. exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I'm just going to do the opposite. Start over I, I, I mean, again. I don't think he consciously Right, of course that, not. But that's what seemed to have happened. Yeah. When I met him, he was in his 60s, and he seemed actually lonely. Like, you know, the third act of being rich and famous, what he said is, it's like I can't go in a grocery store, you know. I'm recognizable. He yeah. was very recognizable. He could draw a caricature of his face and yeah. couldn't go any place without someone recognizing him. I'm sure that thing where somebody shows up at his door and says, yeah. you know, hi, you changed my life. I need to talk to you. You have to read my work. I think for someone for whom community and family or the community that a family makes was so obviously important important to him on so many different levels, yeah. suddenly being cut off from that because of his fame had to have been hard. Seymour Lawrence, who at age 28 was the director of the Atlantic Monthly Press, which was a big deal. And in fact, he gained fame in publishing with Catherine Ann Porter. Everybody had given up she was a famous short story writer. Everybody loved her stories. Everybody was waiting for her big novel. And at least three publishers had signed her up for the novel. Over the years, she'd never come through with it. Everybody had given up. So Sam went to her and said, I want you to write that novel. And he didn't just give her a contract. He took her to New England inns where he would put her oh, that's up so great. and he I've would talk that. to the innkeeper and say, look, I want her to mainly drink milk. I, <laughs> I want her. And he would go up on weekends and check in and read what she'd done and encourage her, make sure she's okay. She's not straying off the back. And by God, it led to Ship of Fools. That's such a great story. And so Atlantic published in conjunction with a little brown became a huge bestseller and movie. And he asked for a part of the 
prophet. Mm -hmm. And they, of course, just totally rejected mm -hmm. any such possibility, so he quit. And after he quit, he took a job with Alfred Knopf, but he didn't want to live in New York. He liked living in Boston. And he took a job with Knopf, but he was very unhappy. There used to be a shuttle to Boston, New York. He commuted, and his main work for Knopf was clerical. I mean, to sign contracts, mm -hmm. to all that. And he wanted to work with writers. So he quit that, and he didn't quite know what to do. And he published, when he was at Atlantic Little Brown, he published J.P. Donnelly, who mm -hmm. wrote The Ginger Man. And Sam published his Don Levy's next book. They became friends. And Sam, at loose ends, went to Ireland to stay with Don Levy and just say, well, what am I going to do? I had to figure this out. And Don Levy said, you're only going to be happy if you have your own publishing company. And Sam said, I don't have money to do that. He said, my wife has some stock worth about 50000 but, you know, that wouldn't. And Don Levy said, yeah, that's enough. He says, look, to be a publisher, all you need is a room, a telephone, and a writer. And I'll be the writer. So you can start with me. Oh, that's uh, so great. And uh, Sam did it. Exactly that. Really? He, he got a room at 90 Beacon Street. He had one elderly Wellesley graduate named Miss Henley. And she used to come in and type. She had always wore a hat in mm -hmm. the office, and he didn't even ever give her a chair that was appropriate. She had to put telephone books on a chair to sit oh, on. Oh, that's so funny. And anyway, so that was his office, and he made an arrangement, and this was one of the first of its kind to have his, quote, imprint with a publisher. So he made an arrangement with Delacorte. They were famous for paperbacks, and they needed a prestigious hardcover fiction line. So he said, I can bring you those authors. And so the deal was books that he brought, he would select the writers and the books. They would do the publishing, promotion, etc. And it would say, Delacorte Press, a Seymour Lawrence book. Mm -hmm. So that's what he did. And the amazing thing is, he published Slaughterhouse Five. Three publishers had turned it down. You're kidding. The three... Well, I can see it. It was so yeah. different. I yeah. mean, if you were yeah. looking for a World War II novel, you would be yeah. looking for yeah. Herman so, Wooker. And Sam was the perfect guy because that's what he was looking for was some things that were different but of great quality. It was something in the next wave. And so Sam had written Kurt a fan letter for a review Kurt had done of a Random House dictionary mm -hmm. in the New York Times book review. And it was very funny and clever. And Sam wrote to him and said, if you can make a dictionary sound funny in a review, he said, you got to be good. He said, if you ever need a publisher, come and knock on my door. I'm at 90 Beacon Street in Boston. So one day, Kurt, on vacation from Iowa, having had Slaughterhouse turned down by the other three publishers who published his hardcover books, went in to see Sam. He just knocked on the door. He didn't call, and he said, um, you told me to knock on your door. He said, here's a book, and I don't know if you want to read it. And he told him the other publishers had turned it down. Sam said, 
Yeah, I, I very much want to read it. So about three days later, Kirk got a call and Sam said, I really like your book. I want to publish it. I want to make you an offer. Can you come into the office? So Kirk comes up from the Cape. Sam said, I want to give you contract for this and your next two books. So it'll be a three-book contract for hardcover and publishing. And he was one of the first who could offer both hardcover and publishing because that's right. what Delacorte did. So he offered him 35000 a book. And Kurt had never been offered more than 5000 for a book and never even made that on a book. And so Kurt said, you shouldn't pay me that much money. And Sam <laughs> said, why not? Kurt said, my books don't make money. <laughs> and Sam said, when he got excited, he would stammer. And he said, well, you write the books, I'll worry about the money. <laughs> and that was it. And Sam went about buying up rights to all his other books and putting them all in a uniform edition. And as Kurt said, saving me from smithereens. Wow. So that so, was... So just... how did he get the job teaching at Iowa? Because that was before Slaughterhouse-Five came yeah, out. Uh, and the books yeah, hadn't really... Yeah, know... Robert Lowell was supposed to teach there. And he, for some reason, couldn't do it. And I don't know who was who knew of Kurt. You know, he'd begun to be known. There was a critic who taught at Iowa, a great guy named Robert Scholes. Right. And he thought it would be good to have Kurt, you know, a young, innovative guy, et cetera. And that really saved Kurt. I mean, it was the first time he knew other writers. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was lonely on Cape I think that's another reason he wanted to go to the middle of Manhattan. And so suddenly he was in Iowa, and there's Nelson Algren, famous at the time, Vance Borgeli, and they had a rotating group of authors who would come in and teach, and Kurt loved it. And then while there, Scholes interviewed him, got to know him, and he included Kurt in a critical book. It was the first time somebody had written seriously of Kurt as a serious fiction writer. But it was about five different writers, and one of them was Lawrence Durrell. The others were all very well known, so to include Kurt in this was a big deal. And I think it was called The Fabricators. I may not be sure. Oh, I think you're right. Or Fabulators? The Fabulators. Fabulators. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And then Scholes was the one who was asked to write the New York Times book review of Slaughterhouse Five. And, and it was a front page goes. reviews and there it There it that, took off. It happened. And I got to know Scholes. His daughter became a very good friend of mine and died young of a brain tumor, mm-hmm. which Scholes first wife had died up to. It was a tragic story. But I got to know him a little bit. So did and, he hire you to teach at Iowa when you no, went out there? Uh, no, no, that was a different. Jack, Jack Leggett was then the director, and I'd known him from New York. And also, I guess it would be of interest that, you know, the guy who really discovered Kurt for magazines was Knox Berger. And what happened, Kurt was sending all these stories that Knox Berger was the fiction editor of Collier's. And he had gone to Cornell. And so 
with one of the stories, he wrote, sort of scribbled a note and said, are you the Kurt Vonnegut who worked on the Cornell Daily Sun? And I think I knew you then. And he scrawled his name and Kurt at first couldn't read it and he couldn't figure out who this was. And then he finally kept looking at it and said, oh, it's Knox Berger. So he wrote back and then they became friends who worked together. And that first story, Kurt wrote over and over and so it was finally published. And then Knox got him an agent and sort of looked over him till he was the guru. And so after Slaughterhouse, Kurt wrote to Knox and said, listen, you've always told me what to do. He should be my agent. Mm. And so Knox, who had ended up publishing company and he left his job, he made up stationery with his literary thing, you know. And his first act was to write Kurt a long letter of telling him all kind of things he thought he should do with his work and right. the future and this and that. And Kurt didn't like it. Oh, he didn't. And Kurt wrote back and said, I really didn't want an uncle. And so I don't want you to be my yeah. age. And it was crushing to oh, Knox. Sure. So, so did Knox go on? And yes. He, did he become an agent to others? To me. To you. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> what a... Kurt recommended me to Knox. Oh, so he made up for... He was trying to. I mean, you know, yeah. nothing could ever make up for right. it. But Sam was sort of pressing me to leave my longtime agent, who was a great guy. And I always felt bad about it, James Oliver Brown. But in some things, Sam got me all worked up. And I fired Jim. And then... Uh, Kurt said, well, you should get this guy, Knox Berger. He's, he's really good. But Knox really, you know, Knox, I read pages and pages of letters he wrote, single space, how to make this story better, how to you know, do that. Yeah. He, he yeah. was just amazing. Yeah. And, and Knox was a great guy. And he could be kind of quirky. And, you know, he became a good agent good. for a lot of people. But I must say, with Sam Lawrence, his main thing he loved was to find writers who had once done something and then you never heard from again, mm -hmm. like Catherine Ann. So, for instance, he looked up Frank Conroy, who had a great success with his book Stop Time. It was one of the first sort of memoirs of mm -hmm. the kind. And looks up Conroy, and Conroy had published maybe three or four stories, hadn't done anything, lost confidence, and Sam said, okay, I want to bring you back. I want to publish, and he published a slim volume, because that was all there was, you know, and brought Conroy back, and then Conroy wrote what I think is a great novel that never got its due called Body and Soul. But then Sam did that with Jim Harrison, with Barry Hanna. He would go. Oh, my gosh. And Jane Ann Phillips. And in those days, 40% of booksellers were independents. And Sam, before his first job, he knew he wanted to be a publisher. Before his first job, he spent a year as a book salesman. He traveled all over the country. He got to know personally all these guys who owned the independent stores. So he could almost make you a bestseller by 
these contacts that he had. Well, plus, and, it sounds like he had incredible literary taste, too. Oh, he, yeah. I mean, he, yeah, they, they came to Gary trust Hannah, him. Gary Hannah, Jane and, and Phillips. Yeah. Oh, everybody um, yeah. he published. Gish Jen, Susan Minot. Yeah, he had great taste. Interesting. And he would send you on book tours. He'd give you these personal things where you got to see this guy in Denver and this guy in Jackson, Mississippi, and just did it. it you is... know, it's interesting to me. It sounds like he was discovering writers and at the same time that Gordon Lish was. Is that yeah. where they... No, I never heard Sam mention Gordon never. Lish. Interesting. Because uh, I no. think of Susan Minot books and Jane Ann Phillips books coming out around the same time as Amy Hempel and Mark Richard. Yeah, I was not a Gordon Lace fan, but anyway. Well, they uh, sound like polar opposites in terms yeah. of how they work with their writers. Yeah, because Sam was totally built you up. Right, Gordon right. Tore you, tore down. you down. Exactly. And, and if you could live through that, then yeah, you, know, yeah. you may have ended up with a book. Like with Ray Carver, I mean... He kind of takes credit for Ray Carver's work, which yeah, it sounds yeah. like Sam Lawrence yeah. never would have done with. Yeah, and he called himself Captain, Captain Fiction. Fiction. Yeah, Sam was much more. Sam would never do something. I mean, he was more formal in a sense, but yet very informal in his relationship. He got to know his authors. One of the first things we did after he signed me up, I remember that late that winter, he said. You want to go to the islands? I, I didn't even know what the islands, you know. So he planned a trip to St. Thomas, and we went, oh. you know, and he'd found a house where you could rent a thing and set up deep sea fishing and all this. I mean, he loved to have a good time. And his whole thing was built on these writers may not make money right now, but they will always make you money. And when Delacorte, at a certain point, when it was bought by Brutalsman and blah, 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 and all new accountants came in, and they cut Sam off. They fired him. And because that year, his profits didn't come up to what was spent. And he tried to explain, yeah, but these people who are not making money, they're, gonna they're going make to make money. And they always did. But that wasn't what was being done. It had to be the bottom line. It had to be right now, blah, blah, blah. And then Sam kind of cast around. He was briefly with somebody. Then he kind of settled in again with Houghton Mifflin. And it was Sam who was responsible for my book, New York, in the 50s. And what happened, I had published a piece on Baldwin, a profile in GQ. And Sam read it, and he called me up. He said, this is one of the best things you've done. This should be part of a book on New York in the 50s. I'd never thought of such right. a book. You know, I mean, just so he did that kind of thing. And, you know, yeah, yeah it was I'd great. I'd love to talk about New York in the 50s, um, maybe in the Another. next podcast, too. That would yeah. be great. Thank you. Talk again soon. Thanks again to Mr. Wakefield, and thank you to our listeners for listening. Naptown is taped at Butler University's Irwin Library with the help of Megan Rutledge-Grady. 
Funding for NAPTOWN was provided by the Ayers Fund, National Endowment for the Humanities, and Indiana Humanities. This is a Dominique Weldon, Rory Deshmer production. Again, this is your host, Susan Neville. See you next time in NAPTOWN. Thank you.